Hannah Brown. Chris McLeish, episode number six. 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 <laughs> six. We're only 660 episodes away from the devil's episode himself. Yeah, let's not tempt fate by saying that. Okay. Satan, come on down to Podcast Town. Don't, don't. He can be our guest. (laughs) You don't say that. 660 episodes is a lot of episodes, so don't worry too much. That is a lot of episodes. Good God. That's like... Yeah, you'd be well into your 30s by the time we got to that Let's point. Let's not talk about that. <laughs> I am but, but a fresh, fresh-faced I mean, teenager. Yeah, you're only 17. What are we talking about? But anyway, how is um, life treating you now that we are emerging from the end of this level four at time of recording? Hopefully. I mean, have you heard any updates? Is it definitely ceasing on the 11th? Well, that is the word on the street at the minute. But because I'm on different streets because I'm at my mum's house. That is very true. You have multiple streets to walk. I have so many things to consider. We are we are currently level two. Oh, that means you've got all the friggin' freedoms. Yeah, so like we're <laughs> we're way better than Glasgow. <laughs> I should say I didn't come here with complete disregard to the rules. I did come here because my mum slipped down the stairs and hurt herself. So yes. I came home. We managed to coincide coming home to help mum get off the floor and also just before tier four kicked in in Glasgow and I did have time to isolate beforehand as well so we're all good here kids yeah and also this is going to make you sound like an absolute bore but you don't really leave the house so (laughs) you're so true you're true you're so right I Um, I do have normally quite the budding social life but I really have sabotaged a lot of that for the well-being of my fellow man and one man. One has to. You have to. During these during these trying times. Although Absolutely. I'm going to put it on record. And maybe I shouldn't because I have got a semi-exciting... Well, no, it's quite an exciting Zoom meeting next week or the week after. I'm sick of Zoom. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can understand that. I, I haven't been on it so frequently recently. Yeah. Which has been a gift. Yeah. Truly a gift. Um, what's your Zoom meeting? I don't want you to tell me. Are you allowed to tell me? No, I am allowed to tell you. It's like, so how do I say this without it being long and also without making it sound like I'm bragging? Okay, brag. Brag. Right. So last November 2019, um, I was very, very lucky to partake in a three-day workshop at the Royal Opera House. Um, for directors that either wanted to move into working in opera or were currently working in opera and wanted to gain some more um, experience. So I did that. And then this year over lockdown, they very, very kindly gave us training. I'm not going to name drop the director, but like with a very influential director who I appreciate so much that she (laughs) gave her time to us all because she was absolutely amazing and inspirational and I would like to be her when I grow up. We can speak about that with Satan when he comes on. Yeah. <laughs> Sell your soul and you could be her. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, it was just a little ca- Christmas catch-up Zoom meeting with some of the other directors that were doing the training. Because oh, we've not Because the training ended round about, oh God, when was it? August, middle of August, end of August, something like mm-hmm. that. So it's just like a little Christmas catch-up now that Lovely. now that English theatres are allowed to open. 
Scottish theatres, on the other hand, is a whole other mess. It is a whole other thing, but let me tell you, I don't think I approve of London theatres opening or English theatres I mean, opening. Fair, I I can see your point. Yeah, I know that we need to get this industry started again, and I mean, I as much as any other actor, I'm desperate to act again. Yeah, but I would much rather that the older demographic who I would like to see in the audience don't get taken out by a deadly virus before they're able to attend any performances. Exactly. We don't did that want sentence that. make sense? It, it did make sense. Don't worry. Okay, go. <laughs> I get what you mean. Because I was going to go on and say, what, that's our lovely matinee audiences. Yeah. We have to protect them. If we take out the Bettys and the Dorises, we're going to have nobody there for a matinee. Apologies. I've just... <laughs> I've just eaten a whisper um, Don't worry because a second ago I had chocolate And it had popping candy in it So I had to sit away from the mic so you couldn't hear it Oh we're <laughs> such children really um, Nothing makes me happier than watching Two people who are in their Kind of 80s I would say Sitting having a drink With their pal And yeah. then even more than that Having an ice cream at the yes. interval It makes me so happy <laughs> seeing when I see older people having a social life, it brings me a lot of joy. It's great. I absolutely love it. And they're so talkative and they're like genuinely pleased. And although it can be quite tricky if they ask you your opinion on the show and you have already seen the show and do not <laughs> have a high opinion yes. of it, which can happen. I normally say, oh, I haven't seen it yet, but I've heard great things, even if exactly. I have seen it. Oh, it's, oh what a, like, I'm stealing that. Yeah, it's a good line. It's an excellent line. I'm currently in the process of reevaluating, as every, as everyone has, I think, over the past year, reevaluating their life choice. <laughs> yeah, I I think I pretty much reached the decision that if my agent chose to drop me or my uh -huh. agent like went bust or something and had to stop um, being an agent, then mm -hmm. I was probably just going to give up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm doing the toss up at the minute whether to go back to university and have been really considering doing another master's and then my doctorate but I don't know yet because it's quite a scary thought mm -hmm. <laughs> it is something that I think I'd really like to give a go the thought of re-entering education really does give me hives see because I would I would say my dream job is that I would really like to be a lecturer because okay. I very much thrive in like an academic environment mm -hmm. so it doesn't so to me, that's kind of like one of the perfect places to be, but I can understand why it would freak you out. Yeah, I mean, I so I am quite, I'm secretly really clever. You are, what do you mean secretly? You're incredibly intelligent. <laughs> I wasn't fishing, but thank you very much. But you are. <laughs> I think now is the time to tell people about the slight change in the Christmas schedule. <laughs> so I, it's, bear with, because my mum um, is creeping in. <laughs> oh, she's taking a photo. She's taking a photo. Yeah. <laughs> I can't pretend that you're not there. Because you've got a camera pointed at me. No, you can't. I can't. No one can see you, but I can. I don't want you to get spoilers of what the podcast's about. Yes, the slight change in the schedule is that we had initially were both going to do stories by MR James. We were. And I wasn't overly familiar that's and I started to do fair. some research and then discovered that he is not really my jam in terms of getting the words to come out in a in a coherent way. 
It's not possible. I mean, listen, I totally hear what you're saying because you should have seen me trying to record mine. I love them to bits because I like old fashioned things. Mm-hmm, <laughs> and I do, to an extent, speak in quite an old fashioned way. But even I struggled at points because he does, there is a lot of words. There's also a lot of words that we no longer use and also a lot of random Latin phrases that are just dropped in. Yeah. Because he was a scholar and an exceptionally bright man. So he liked to, sh- he liked to show off, I think, a little bit in his stories, trying to read it. it was kind of, the only way I can describe it, it's like my brain couldn't process the words at the right speed. <laughs> yeah, it come out my mouth, but I've powered through. So we have all been witness to me struggling my way through quotes from court cases from the Victorian days. There was no chance that I was going to get my tongue around solid literature, <laughs> um, where it's a full kind of half hour long story of words that just don't make sense in the order that they're presented <laughs> to me. Um, but. I was pleasantly surprised. I found an article that featured the names and the titles of stories that are in the kind of gothic horror genre that were that are all public domain. That's how I discovered that Edith Nesbitt, writer of things such as The Railway Children, and also we just discovered before starting that she wrote a collection of short, short stories called Pussy and Doggy Tales, which I think is excellent. Oh, and I've just noticed. So that was ni- that was 1899. In 1895, it was just Doggy Tales. So she decided to expand to, to all forms of um, critters. And uh, yeah, so that's oh, good. So she wrote the, ra- the Railway Children, probably one of her most famous stories. But she was also a horror story writer. And they're of the right period to still be considered gothic. But the language is slightly more Chris McLeish friendly. And we like that. Yeah. This is coming from someone who's quite happy to do a Shakespeare speech. I'm not sure what it is about Victorian language. I can't get my tongue around. <laughs> I will be doing... Something by E. Nesbitt. And I'll talk more about her when the time comes. So that's something to look forward to for Christmas time. Yes. Yeah. I'm very excited. So we both are, we're still doing short stories in the gothic realm. Yes. And also, how nice is it just to represent uh, the woman? Very true. Shall we turn to the magical hat of destiny? Dip on in. I feel like we need a theme tune for the magical hat. I'll write it right now. Um, um, no, I'm going to keep working on it. Keep working on it. Yeah. That's your, that's your job. For one week, I would like you to surprise me with a theme tune for the hat. <laughs> okay. Oh. Hocus pocus. Well, funny, <laughs> funny you should say that. Okay, Chris, this might be a slightly divisive question for you. Give it to me. Okay. Who is best? Winifred, Mary, or Sarah Sanderson? Okay, listen. <laughs> you have really opened up a dialogue into my favourite subject that I could happily <laughs> give lectures upon lectures on. The people want to hear it. I have a lot of feelings. I have never actually really thought about which one I think is best. <laughs> I would say, because it depends on which angle you're looking at. In terms of the best witch, the answer is 100% Winifred Sanderson. She does have talent. But... 
Sarah has the ability to lure children with her voice. That's pretty cool. She stuck by her sister despite the fact that... I need to break this down for people who don't know Hocus Pocus. So Billy Butcherson is going out with Winifred, but cheats on Winifred with Sarah. And so Winifred then kills him and stitches his mouth up. And Sarah still sticks by Winifred. She's like, you killed the man. I mean, I suppose Sarah had some making up to do because she enabled Billy Butcherson to cheat on Winifred. So I think in conclusion, Mary is probably the best because she didn't. (laughs) She didn't mess up love affairs of any kind. She's very loyal to Winifred. She follows her follows her around like a little lap dog. She has the ability to sniff out children, which is pretty good because sometimes parents become blind to the scent of their children's own dirty nappies. And so Mary can help them out with that. That's really yes. good. She never seems particularly hellbent on destroying the lives of Max and Danny. She's just kind of there going along with it. So she's very loyal. And to me... Loyalty is very important. Sorry, I thought the best course of action was just to sit and let you talk. <laughs> the problem is that this is probably very uneditable because I have so many feelings when it comes to Hocus Pocus that I will just go on about it. And it's better just fair. to let the stream of consciousness happen. Also, side note, purple is one of my favourite colours, so Sarah Sanderson obviously wins in that sense as well because the Sarah Sanderson costume is the only one I've ever wanted to be in. I mean, Fair. Who doesn't want that corset? You have just seen Hocus Pocus this year, but do you have an opinion of who is best? I feel like if I was to be a Sanderson sister, I'd probably be Mary. Mm-hmm. But I am as short-tempered as Winifred. Okay. I do, I do empathise with Winifred on a spiritual level. She doesn't have time for many peoples. I think, yeah, I think I'm going to go with Winifred. Okay, good. Yeah, I I could see that. That's I mean She is I feel, excellent. I feel like I need to watch the film the same number of times that you have before I even get to It will take you a long time because I it could <laughs> I can recite the script word for word. Yep. And I'm not joking. I believe that you are first this week with your story. I'm first, first this week. And I highly suspect that the delivery of both stories may be slightly um, I don't know, uh, brain, I don't know. I feel a brain struggle coming on is what I'm saying about myself. So let's just fire away. I feel let's like we just... have wrapped up. The conclusion to the Hocus Pocus question is they're all the best. They're all the best. They all win. Yeah. You can't fault any of them. Not a, okay. not a single one. So speaking of brains, my story this week might feature something to do with that. Wonderful. I have no idea what that might mean. (laughs) (laughs) In terms of both like brain as in like the organ and brain as in like you're very intelligent. Oh, okay. Do I have to think? Is this, am I going to have to think? No, you don't have to think. (laughs) Oh, thank the Lord. So this week I have another story time for you. Wonderful. Because last week I exhausted myself with my rant and I didn't want to do any ranting this week, Chris. I didn't want to do it. No. Sometimes you need to take a break. <laughs> I didn't, so I just wrote down lots of facts and got stuck down very many different avenues of reading about things that weren't really remotely related, but it's because I kept clicking on links and it just took me to random places. But here we are. This week, I'm going to give you The Legend of Matthew Clydesdale, a.k.a. The Glasgow Frankenstein. I know nothing about this. <gasps> X 
excellent. <laughs> yeah, I don't know this at all. Right, so it's a little bit placed in truth and a little bit urban legend. Okay. It's not widely known about. So Matthew Clydesdale was a weaver from Airdrie. There's very little known about him because the story does concern him, but he is like merely just a sort of a cog in this story. So there's not mm-hmm. loads of details about him. I mean, I could have found out loads of details, but all our libraries are currently shut. So here we are. Imagine the research we can do once libraries reopen. You see, when we can get access to books that aren't... Oh, it's going to be so good. <laughs> I'm going to sanitise every page. Yeah. Little, a little... Yeah. Going through them all. Yes. So, on the 4th of November, 1818, so we're very much back, mm. Clydesdale walked forth to the gallows built before the new high courts in Glasgow, having been sentenced to death following his murder of an elderly man whilst in a drunken rage. See, this is why I don't drink. Exactly, this is why sugar is better. Absolutely. Um, It's believed the man, from what I could find, that the man he murders was a man called Alexander, although it's sometimes reported as Andrew as well, love. And he was a man in his 80s, I believe, and it's recorded that Clydesdale murdered the man with a pickaxe. Oh. The alleged incident is, is that Clydesdale was drunk and uh, Love and his son, I think, were going to work because they worked in a mine and there had been like a slight altercation between the son and uh, Clydesdale Alexander Love tried to intervene and got himself stabbed in the head with his own pickaxe. That is grim. It's pretty nasty. One thing that's lightening the whole thing for me is that I'm imagining that Mr. Clydesdale is a horse. (laughs) I hadn't Um, even thought about that. (laughs) So that's making this story so far much more tolerable. (laughs) Oh, God. Right. (laughs) Oh, jeez. Right, all I'm going to think about him now is walking about with a big horsey face. Why did you have to say that? <laughs> he click-clopped over and took the pickaxe and smashed a Mr. Love in the Oh, head. God. So, Clydesdale was found guilty of this crime. And I'm presu- when it says the new High Court, I'm presuming the High Court that now still exists on Salt Market in Glasgow, because that is a Georgian building. So Yeah, I would think so. So you'd think that. And I'd obviously... Um, People were hanged on Glasgow Green because that's where Dr. Pritchard was hanged. It was. And it's always famed that one of the last things that um, people would see that were being hanged was the column in the middle of Glasgow Green. Okay, so on his execution date, he was to be joined in execution by Simon Ross, who was sentenced on the charge of theft but this was an unrelated incident to Clydesdale. They both just happened to be... Their sentence was being served on the same day. Um, the execution was to be quite the public spectacle because, you know, it was a great day out. Absolutely. We're talking going to the theatre for a matinee. Try popping down to the green for a hanging. <laughs> Lovely. Oh, God. The executioner pulled the big handle and they dropped... And it is reported that Ross uh, twitched and convulsed for several minutes before kind of giving up, basically, which is nasty. Mm. But it's recorded that Clydesdale succumbed immediately to his fate. So it was a very much a quick 
um, execution yeah. for him. So Ross was transported to Ramshorn Cemetery, uh, where he's to be buried in a pauper's grave. And actually, Ramshorn Cemetery still exists. And I think Ramshorn is where friggin' what's his name? Longelier is buried. <laughs> Are you kidding me? No, because remember who All you said? All these connections. Yeah. So it was um, that, if it was, the, if it's the one I'm thinking of at Ramshorn's church, which is in Merchant City, that's where Longelier is buried in that, um, the grave under a different name. And that's that where this guy wild. is as well. It's crazy. But, and here's the but, Clydesdale, however, had another fate awaiting him. <gasps> yes. I'm going to move into something, this is related to the story, but I feel okay. like a bit, a bit of background I enjoy is, it. is relevant to this story. At the time this story is set, the University of Glasgow was situated on High Street, which is at the north end of the city centre. So, you know the big present building, Glasgow Uni building on Gilmore mm-hmm. Hill, which is the big, which is the one built in the Gothic Revival style? Lovely. We love that. Um, which is the one on the hill that you can see in the West End. That actually didn't open until 1870. And the old Glasgow Uni building no longer exists. It was up near the Tron Theatre. Oh, cool. Yeah. Glasgow at the time was kind of renowned for its science teaching. Mm-hmm. Its teaching of the sciences, should I say. And increasing numbers of medical students... And a sort of increasing belief that one must learn the inner workings of the body in order to help it meant there was a demand for fresh cadavers. You might see where I'm going with this. I do. I do. <laughs> um, so the Murder Act of 1752, which is not what it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> it's really not what it sounds like. Um, allowed universities to legally claim the bodies of executed criminals for use in anatomy dissection classes, but it was only the bodies of those charged of murder. Okay. You couldn't get them for any other reason. They had to be a murderer in order to get the body. Like what? just truly one of the worst types of people. Yeah, basically. Makes sense. The, the least good they are, because there was a whole moral thing at this time about what should happen to a body post-mortem. So that's why... Yeah. There was so much hoo-ha about trying to get like a regular supply into the university. Um, despite this, however, them being legally able to get bodies through this act, there still was not enough to keep up demand. So, enter stage left, the resurrectionist. Why stage left, Chris? Stage left, because that's where the ghosts always come. I don't know. Why do, <laughs> why do I not know this? <laughs> so... Fun fact, in theatre tradition, still to this day in Panto, the evil comes on from stage left and the good comes on from stage right. Well, there you are. There you are, because the left was often historically associated with evil. And also the Latin for left is, I'm sure it's sinister. Sinistra, yeah. Sinistra, see? There you go. And you you know the reason why that just came up? Why? That is literally in my story. Are you kidding me? No. Oh no! Oh, I'm God. not even kidding you. Um, well, I've never played a baddie because I'm always cast as a prince. Oh, I mean that very much so, is your type. Well, for now, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm almost over the hill for prince almost castings. Over the hill. No, you're not. 
So, the, this group of people who called themselves the Resurrectionists are perhaps best known as body snatchers. So, these people would exhume freshly buried bodies in order to sell them to the local universities to use for dissection. Understandably, the public were very, very unhappy with this grisly business. And in 1813, Glasgow Uni passed a new rule expelling any student that was found to have links with grave robbing. Which is good. Mm -hmm. Because, as I said previously in a couple of episodes ago, university students effectively would have been given free tutoring if they brought their own body. (laughs) So in my research for this story, I found a a little paper clipping that was on an article about this. And it's an 1820s report that a Glasgow medical student, after assisting with a birth in which the child was actually stillborn, ran off with the baby's body. (laughs) Oh, that's disgusting. Yep. So he ran off with the baby's body under his coat, having taken the body in lieu of payment for helping this woman give birth because there was such they were it was literally like finding gold dust to these students he reportedly threw it off a bridge in order to make a quicker escape because that's a logical thing to do was there was it a bridge over water or a bridge over a road well it said he was running down london road and i cannot think off the top of my head where that is so london road is Oh, I don't know where London Road is either. No, but I'm hoping it wasn't into water. But either way, he shouldn't be throwing a stillborn baby's body about. No, yeah, you're absolutely right. That's the (laughs) the takeaway. Yeah, fair play. (sighs) But eventually he was apprehended and interrogated about what he was doing uh, with this child's body. But the Anatomy Act of 1832 ended the body snatching business as this led to the expansion of legal procurement of cadavers, which is what we want. What do we want? Legal procurement for body snatching. Nope, for body... Never mind. I got confused. (laughs) I forgot what the chant was. We don't want that. We don't want to make it legal. This is Um, why I don't attend protests, because I'd shout the wrong thing. (laughs) Oh, God. And that could be risky, depending what protest you're at. Absolutely. Oh, God. We've got Glasgow Uni. We've got body snatchers. Here are our two professors and or academics of the hour. So we have Dr. Andrew Ewer, who was born in 1778 and died in 1857. And he received his MD from the University of Glasgow in 1801. And he became a member of the Faculty of Physicians and Surgeons in 1803. He also taught at the then recently founded Andersonian Institution, which is what would later become the University of Strathclyde. Oh. We also have Professor James Jeffrey, who was born in 1759 and died in 1848. Um, he graduated with an MA from Glasgow Uni in 1778 before studying medicine at Edinburgh University, graduating in 1786. From 1790, he held the twin chairs of anatomy and botany at Glasgow Uni. So, during my research, I found that uh, Geoffrey actually appears to have been presumed connected with the body snatching at the time. Now, this is not to say that he was involved, just that people at that time presumed he was. Okay, 
Because okay. he was kind of like famous in his field. I shan't hold him against it. Nope, I shan't hold it against him. <laughs> <laughs> um, reportedly, a mob smashed the windows of Jeffrey's house as they were convinced he had been involved in the theft of the body of Janet McAllister. Jeffrey actually hadn't been involved in this theft, but Janet's body, along with five others, were discovered in the dissecting room at the College Street Medical School, which was an establishment founded by John Burns to actually rival the teaching at the University of Glasgow. Okay. So somebody did steal her, but it was, yeah, nothing, to do with, it it was nothing to do with Glasgow Uni. <laughs> what have we got? We've got Clydesdale. We've got Glasgow Uni. We've got scientists. You can see where this is going. Yes. And where this story gets its name. Matthew Clydesdale was to be the specimen in an experiment of galvanism. So galvanism or galvanization was the scientific thought or line of inquiry that suggested that electricity had something to do with the secret of life. In Italy, surgeon Luigi Galvani investigated the effect of electricity on animals at the University of Bologna and a 1781 experiment on a frog showed electricity could elicit spasms in the muscles. So also around about that time, physicist Alessandro Volta, great name by the way, Volta's an excellent, excellent surname. Um, Alessandro, cre- Alessandro. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry guys, don't have the rights. Oh God. Um, Alessandro Volta created the Voltaic Pile in 1799, and this is believed to be the world's first battery. I use plenty of those for my Christmas we d- decorations. We do, we get through a lot of them. I had to put um, Christmas decorations in there so no one thought of anything salacious. I didn't want to leave that, <laughs> didn't want to let that salaciousness linger in the air. Oh, God. Um, and the creation of the Voltaic Pile um, debunked the school of thought that electricity was solely gel- generated by human or by living beings. So basically, okay. they found out it was a chemical reaction and actually nothing to do with us at all, really. Okay. So this experiment with. Uh, Dr. Ewan, Professor Jeffrey, was going to involve uh, galvanism, which was the application of electricity to, like, a specimen, basically. It is told that five minutes before Clydesdale's body arrived in the anatomy theatre, Dr. Ewer charged the galvanic battery with dilute nitric and sulfuric acids. So, mm-hmm. so he's, get, he's getting ready. He's getting ready. So it's a spicy cocktail. Yeah. <laughs> So, there is varying accounts of what happened during this experiment. Clydesdale turned up, the lecture theatre was allegedly absolutely packed out with people because this is a time, this is also around about the time that Mary Shelley was inspired to write Frankenstein because there was all of these experiments going on with regards to applying electricity Mm -hmm. um, to formerly living things to see what would happen. The account that I have found is recorded in a 1980s paper by Dr. Fred Pattinson, and it's called The Clydesdale Experiment, An Early Attempt at Resuscitation. So he kind of like found Ewan Jeffrey's um, personal writings on this experiment, and he's kind of like paraphrased them and stuff like that. So I'm going to be taking this account from that paper. Your remarked upon the resulting effect of attaching the galvanic rods to the left phrenic nerve, which is a mixed motor sensory nerve that provides exclusive motor control of the diaphragm, 
and he attached a rod to the diaphragm itself. And it said, The success of it was truly wonderful. Full, nay, laborious breathing instantly commenced. The chest heaved and fell, the belly was protruded and again collapsed with the retiring and collapsing diaphragm. So there's a little bit of movement going on here. Mm-hmm. Then the electric current was applied to the su- supraorbital nerve, which, it says, provides sensory innervation to the skin of the lateral forehead and upper eyelid. So like face, basically, the yeah, top, top yeah. of your face. Um, and he also applied a rod to the heel, and perhaps the most shocking of events occurred at this point. No pun intended. <gasps> I didn't even realise I wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Well done. Um, so it says that the most horrible grimaces were exhibited. Rage, horror, despair, anguish, and ghastly smiles united their hideous expression in the murderer's face. At this period, several spectators were forced to leave the apartment from terror or sickness, and one gentleman fainted. Wimp. So, at this point, the application of electricity to both Clydesdale's head and his, whatever this nerve was in his heel caused what looked like his face to start pulling expressions. So, you can understand why they'd be a little bit freaked out about that. Because I would. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've seen that kind of stuff in movies, but I reckon in the 1800s, movies were not the thing. They weren't really the thing. No. And everyone's freaking out because by the looks of it, applying this ele- electricity or this galvanic battery um, to Clydesdale is, a make- is making him look quote-unquote alive. But surprisingly, despite... The fact that this experiment did show technically some kind of finding in the application of electricity to a cadaver. Very few newspapers at the time actually recorded anything of it, and it kind of fell into obscurity as like a story. Mm-hmm. And then it's at this point it kind of became a legend. So it eventually started to be told, but with various embellishments to it. So 50 years after the experiment in 1865 writer and kind of known Glasgow character quote unquote, we all know one of them Peter Mackenzie discovered the story of Matthew Clydesdale and he wrote his own account of events. So he alleges that he was present at this experiment and claims that Clydesdale was indeed brought back to life, sat up on the table And in a panic, one of the anatomists took a scalpel and stabbed him in the throat. Lovely. A wee tracheotomy. Yeah, we love that. Um, Leading to the corpse to once again return to his dead state. And in other versions of the story, some go as far to say that Clydesdale sat up, got off the table, walked out the lecture hall and was never to be seen again. Fabulous. And he now works at the King's. (laughs) (laughs) He's a great pal. <laughs> but personally, I enjoy that one better because I think that's the I think that's the one or the creepiest thing that I take away from like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is that you don't know if the creature is like immortal. Yeah. So I kinda I like the idea that he did get up and walked out and is still among us somewhere. 
That would be cool. Yeah. So the experiment actually wasn't in vain. So it's recorded that you're suggested that he would do certain things differently in order to perhaps get like a better result. Mm-hmm. And he mentioned placing brass conductors over the diaphragm and phrenic nerve. And Dr. Gure actually sort of unwittingly described what would become the defib. Yeah. Is this a Scot? So are we, so are, are the Scots, again, the founders of an excellent invention? I mean, I can't say that whole, like, yeah, I mean, maybe, but. I'm going to say that we are. Okay. <laughs> Why not? So, Why not? Yeah. Um, so from what he was describing, he was actually now describing something that has saved countless lives when nice. he was just, when he was just thinking about, oh, what would I have done to bring this? this dead body back to life with electricity. And actually, he sort of, like, foresaw something that we do use nowadays. So, yeah, that was the legend of Matthew Clydesdale, a.k.a. the Glasgow Frankenstein. Lovely. Thank you. I feel like that might have been a slightly chaotic telling because my brain is mush. Don't you worry about it. Hopefully you got the gist of it. I did. We are approaching Christmas and the the brain... The brain... the brain bemuddlement is uh, a common thing. So I it feel is. like the, ne- the next couple of weeks we're allowed to have a pass if our stories are yeah. <laughs> a, little, a little charged, if you will. Exactly. And Again, also, no I pun think... intended. <laughs> oh, we're doing so well with the electricity puns. Yeah, also, I think my brain is just frazzled after reading that M.R. James story. Because that's, that's what I spent most of my weekend doing. Uh, well, I've always been a big fan of the Frankenstein-esque tales. Mm-hmm. So that one thoroughly was up my street. Oh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. And I gotta yeah. say, not a lot of people actually know about this story because it is technically a true story. It's just that over the years it has it has passed into legend because it is told with so many like embellishments now. And the latest embellishment is that he was a horse. Oh, exactly. That was yeah. one. We didn't expect that twist. So this was all actually story. a story of a horse that somebody kept stabbing with a, like a cattle prod and yeah. eventually became a murderer. That's the story you just told me. I don't know if that's what it sounds like <laughs> to everyone else, but that's what I got from it. So Excellent. I'm glad someone understood. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And also, I don't know what it is. And I don't know if it's because I went to Glasgow Uni or something. Because I have to say, right, that I applaud and admire anybody that studies anatomy or is studying to become a surgeon or medicine or uh, vet sciences because Mm -hmm. the thought of dissection makes me want to vomit (laughs) yeah so i only ever had to dissect i had to dissect a worm and i had to dissect a muscle like a muscle from the sea not like a, oh, I thought, I think not we- like a bicep. <laughs> <laughs> and it just turned to the person I was at a desk with. I was like, excuse me, I'm just going to slice your arm open. Is that right? <laughs> no, it was like a muscle. And I, as a vegetarian and a proper avid vegetarian, I found that yeah. so hard. I just couldn't. I just couldn't. And I'm sure, I mean, I think I'm right in saying this. I mean, it was a while ago I was at uni, but <laughs> it was only three years, but here we are. <laughs> um, I'm sure the anatomy buildings are still... At are are still used 
at the Gilmore Hill campus. Right. I just remember walking past them. And if it is the building I'm thinking about, the windows have got like frosted glass on them now. Ooh. For, obvi- for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I also, there's just some, I think there's just something really sort of macabre about the whole body snatching thing. And, but, all right, also... What I'm going to say is going to sound really twisted, but I don't mean for it to sound twisted. I also think there's a super interesting, like, moral argument around the body snatchers and stuff like that. Yeah. Because, obviously, like, it was totally immoral what they were doing, because Mm -hmm. you shouldn't be digging people out their graves. But also, it was all these young students who had to see the workings of the human body in order to fulfill like the moral duty that they had taken upon themselves to save people's lives. Yeah. So there is like this whole kind of like complicated argument as to it, it was a moral what they were doing, but was it for like a moral purpose? Yeah. I find that whole era of like university life really like fascinating. That's a fair point. And I feel like if it was opened up if they were able to open up the discussion of people donating their bodies, yeah, that would have been very beneficial for this day and age, for that day and age, rather. Yes. Yeah, I'm yeah. not in the 1800s. I forget sometimes. We're um, not. No. <laughs> you might look like a pirate, but we're not. Yeah, I can't help it. <laughs> uh, so I'm either, I'm always either a pirate or the Western world's image of Jesus or what else am I? Renaissance period vampire. Or a Victorian with a habit of wanting to kill people. Yeah, you know, it's just I really it's do tick a lot your of boxes. Niche. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm surprised I haven't been cast as a some kind of rogue. Rogue. Well, I have. I've been a pirate. You have been a pirate, and I you have. wore that lovely frock coat. I did. I did. I love that coat. That's a good coat. Orange wouldn't have been my chosen color, but what can you do? Shall we launch straight in to my story? Let's go for it. So funnily enough, I actually considered doing Birkin hair. <gasps> How we, we love a link. We love a link, We're, but <gasps> I didn't go for Birkin hair. It? I decided to go okay. for something else. I went for something a little closer to home. Okay. That is my home, Aberlady, on the east coast of Scotland. So let me first tell you a little bit about East Lothian. I'm not going to give too much away what the story is going to be about. But it's something that I have always found fascinating and the fact that it all happened pretty much all around where I've lived my entire life till I moved to Glasgow nine years ago. Oh, bless you, Trixie. Oh my God, that is the cutest thing ever. She just sneezed all over the shop. Okay, so East Lothian uh, is a county that is considered chiefly agricultural Uh, with farming, fishing and coal mining forming significant parts of the local economy and that has been the case since the 19th century. Okay. Uh, Aberlady is a part of East Lothian as are places like Dunbar, Musselburgh, North Berwick, which is where I'm going to talk about quite a lot. Uh, Lots and lots of places. And also talking about it being uh, an agricultural kind of area, I might have told you this before, but the bus stop in Aberlady High Street is literally an old set of scales that was used to weigh sheep and pigs and things that were being taken through the village to the markets nearby. 
So that's pretty cool. I love that. Like, let's say we just be sitting <laughs> on a set of scales. Um, I'll probably put a picture of that on Instagram because it's kind of, it doesn't look like a set of scales, but it did used to. It did used to. Yes. Uh, so all around us, we've got Castle Ruins. We have Tantalan Castle, Dunbar, Diddleton, all of which are really, really beautiful and well worth a visit if ever anybody's in the East Coast. Excellent. Uh, some of them are, you pay a little fee to enter, but some of them are just completely free to roam around we have loads of castles that. that are just literally sitting in the middle of a field that you can go up to oh. and have a look it's really cool uh, popular legend suggests that it was a battle between the picts and the angles in east lothian village of athelson ford in 1823 no it's not even 1823 it was longer ago than that it was 823 mm. 823 <gasps> that the flag of scotland was conceived now, this isn't a part of my story, but I do believe that what happened was after the battle, when they looked up in the sky, there was the shape of a cross formed by clouds. So it's nothing to do with St. Andrew at all? Well, see, this is why it's a legend. Okay. It might just be that people <laughs> in the East Coast are like, we were the ones who saw the flag first. Ew. And so that's probably why that <laughs> happened. But it's also, Fair. I also just had to get Athelson Ford out there because Athelson Ford is spelt A-T-H-E-L. S-T-A-N-E-F-O-R-D. It's too many letters, too long a word. It's just pronounced Athelson Ford. You have to be, you're doing very well in pronouncing it. Thank you. Some people say Elsenford, but I, we... I've never heard of it, so I don't have an opinion. <laughs> I don't know if people who are from this place call it Elsenford, but I call it Athelson Ford, and that's what I've always called it. So, it's, suck That's it. very much a Scottish thing, though, is... Like writing words with stupid silent letters or not the way they're pronounced. Yeah, Mulgai has an has a V Mulgai. in it. So what? Mulgai. Mulgai. It's spelled Mulgavi. Oh, so it does have a V. Sorry. <laughs> I was making a point, and you've just helped I'm me prove sorry. it. Sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's been a day. <laughs> Don't you worry. So as I say, I'm going to focus largely on North Berwick. So North okay. Berwick is a town that lies hugging the coast of East Lothian, just to the mm -hmm. east of Edinburgh, as is all of East Lothian. It is a small, sleepy old fishing town and yet had several surprising claims to fame. Mm. The island of Fidra, which you can see from the bay, it was the inspiration for Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island. I did not. What an excellent fun fact. Fabulous. It is home to the Bass Rock, which is a famous seabird nature reserve and has been recently named um, the best place to live in Scotland in the Sunday Times best place, best place to live list. That was a mouthful. The best place to live. Oh, that's difficult. The best place to live in Scotland in the Sunday Times best place to live list. Nailed oh, it. Oh, that's well done. Okay, thank you. Uh, the word north was applied to distinguish uh, North Berwick from Berwick-upon-Tweed, which is in England. Um, yes. And throughout the Middle Ages, the Scots called Berwick-upon-Tweed South Berwick because they wanted to differ differentiate. And I cannot tell you how many people I've told I went to high school in North Berwick. And they were like, mm -hmm. oh, you went to high school in England? I'm like, no, North Berwick and Berwick have nothing to do with each other. They are completely different <laughs> places. They are not linked in any way. Oh, that Does my a head tiresome in. argument. Does have, my head have in. To have. <laughs> <laughs> On the south side of North Berwick law, there is evidence of at least 18 hut circles, uh, rich middens, and a field system dating about 2,000 years ago. 
Excellent. So we've been around for a while. And I just said North Berwick Law. I should tell you that North Berwick Law is a volcanic plug from about 300 million years ago. (gasps) The summit bears remnants of an Iron Age hill fort and the ruins of later military buildings that were used for lookouts during the Napoleonic Wars and World War II. Love that. And my high school was at the bottom of North Berwick Law. So literally you'd be sitting in French class just going, oh, bonjour, je suis in baguette. And you'd look out the window and there's a big massive volcano. Yeah. That Great could times. be slightly worrying. Yeah. I mean, it's extinct. Oh, that's fair. 100%. Okay. And also in 1709, the law had a whale jawbone put on the top of it. Okay. I don't know how they got it there in 1709. <laughs> uh, but the, the bone was replaced three times until being removed due to safety concerns in 2005. In 2008, a fiberglass replica whalebone, the same size as the one removed in 2005, was airlifted into place to give North Berwick Law its landmark back. I mean, see, at the minute, Chris, we should be approaching Visit Scotland for sponsorship for this episode from your story alone. <laughs> Absolutely. So despite all of this beautiful stuff, it's a beautiful little place. It is also yes. the place of some of the most brutal and horrific witch trials ever seen in Scotland. Okay, that's not the twist I thought this was going to go. Okay. So, at the turn of the 16th century, the world suddenly became very black and white, where a war was being waged between good and evil. Mm -hmm. Satan and his demons were everywhere. I mean, I've seen them. You've walked down Socky Hall Street on a Saturday night. Well, I was going to say a work joke there, but I don't know whether to put it in in case you get the sack. (laughs) Oh! (laughs) It's maybe for the best. (laughs) (laughs) So their mission, the demons' missions, was to take down all good Christians Christians through their emissaries, which were the witches. It was a time of doctrinal insecurity. Suddenly, the unexplained was no longer explainable, and it heightened the fear of witchcraft. In 1563, the Scottish Witchcraft Act made both witchcraft and the consulting with witches a capital offence. However, it was not until the North Berwick witch trials that the killing really began. So let's now talk about James VI of Scotland. Okay. He's a huge part of why the witch trials happened. So James VI was the only child of Mary Queen of Scots. She had become queen at the age of one week after the death of her father, which is almost mirrored entirely by James, who became King of Scotland at the age of 13 months, after Mary abdicated in 1567. Regents ruled on his behalf until he came of age in 1576, and many of, the, many of those uh, regents were killed or died under mysterious circumstances. Catholic plotters would later plan the gunpowder plot, which you may have heard of, but you're a West Coaster, so maybe not. Uh, rude. <laughs> I don't know if this is me. I don't know if this is history we get told because we're from here. I don't know. Well, can I just I will say that I know very little about the kings and queens of Scotland. So that shows that again. Don't you worry so. about it. Um so the gunpowder plot was a famous failed assassination attempt on James. You're are you talking about Guy Fawkes? No. Is this a different gunpowder plot? Yes. So this was one that happened in Edinburgh. There was two again gunpowder plots. So the, the gunpowder plot against James was in Edinburgh near, it was the um, John Knox's Kirk. I'm actually making this up now. This is purely based on memory. But I think it was okay. John Knox's Kirk, which still exists in Edinburgh. 
And I'm sure that he was staying. Other people died, but he managed to get away. Even in his early years, an attack on James's life got so close that he grappled with the would-be assassin in his chambers. For the young king, fear of assassination wasn't just a phobia. It was a full-on reality. Okay, fair enough. The early events of his life would have had an would have had a profound effect on the king. In many ways, he was an exceptional monarch. He started the first postal service in the UK. He translated what would become the definitive English version of the Bible, which is still the one that's being used today. Ah, oh, yes. Yeah, good guy. He was considered incredibly intelligent, sharp-minded, and had quite the array of interests. However, this interest could borderline on the obsessive. For instance, he became so consumed in hunting down certain stags that he neglected important crown business because he was out hunting. So Mm, if he liked liked something, he became a bit obsessed. A bit like me and Drag Race. A bit like you and Hocus Pocus. Listen, I've never mentioned Hocus Pocus once on this podcast. (laughs) How dare you? Anywho, <laughs> I should also throw in there that when I mentioned that his the early events of his life, that also included the beheading of his mother. And he wasn't brought up by his mum because he was taken away from her when he was just a few months old. Back to this. He had little or no interest in women and preferred to surround himself by men. There have been mm-hmm. some suggestions that these relationships went beyond the platonic. Oh, that's my kind of tale. (laughs) His mother's violent death seemed to have resulted in James's dark fascination with magic. Uh, Did his lack of an immediate family make it difficult for him to be emotionally available to his wife or to rob him of empathy for his subjects? Who's to say? But it seems likely that he would have suffered from some kind of attachment disorder given the circumstances of his early childhood. Fair enough. Potentially, the lack of a female presence in his life caused him to mistrust women. Could be an element of that. Um, And was his obsessive personality something slightly deeper and more psychological that maybe today would have been investigated properly? Mm -hmm. Um, We do not know the answer. Absolutely. Why was he taken away from Mary? Now, this is something to do with, I think, the accusations against Mary in conspiring to take Elizabeth the first down. Right. As I say, there's so much information about James and about Mary that I didn't want to ram this, cram this thing full, but there probably are like small details that I could throw in. I'm sure that it was to do with her being accused of plotting regicide. So what we do know is precisely when his obsession with witchcraft began. So the year was 1589. The king was travelling to Denmark to retrieve his new bride, who was Anne of Denmark. Lovely. In 1589, James and Anne were on their way back to Scotland when the most ungodly storm began. As the swell began to batter the fleet, the fearful Danish admiral declared that the cause of the storm was witchcraft. He believed that it was caused by the wife of an administrator he had insulted. And it seemed that James's vessel was jostled more than the others. The fleet uh, limped back towards the shore and took refuge off the coast of Norway. James had recently met with a Danish Lutheran theologian and expert on demonology. His name was Niels Hemmingsson. 
Hemmingson. His recent education about the dangers of witchcraft convinced the king that the accusations must be true. So therefore, he believed that what was being said about this terrible storm was that it was caused by witches. Oh, great. Yes. There was talk at the time of one of the witches having travelled into the Firth of Forth on a sieve to summon up the storm, not only proving that she was a witch, but also that she was a plotter of regicide. So... There was talk. People spoke about this as if it were fact, that witches had caused the storm because they wanted to take down James. There are lots of things in my research I came across to do with people plotting because they had eyes on somebody else becoming king. And so they were trying to Mm -hmm. get him out of the way. But there were so many different accounts that I thought it best just to just to skim over them a little bit, because that's not really what I was wanting to talk about. That's fair enough. Um, Soon after this disastrous travelling over the waters, the witch hunts in both Scotland and Denmark began. The king was to take part in the hearings and his response was to change the course of how those charged with witchcraft were tried for the next 100 years. The North Berwick witch trials revealed a dark and cruel side to James's nature and yet it was a highly... Intel- yet he was an entirely... Hel- <sighs> Despite the fact that he was a highly intelligent and intellectual king. Well done. Okay, so let's talk about how these North Berwick trials began. Okay. In November 1590, David Seaton, mm-hmm. the magistrate for Trenent, which is a town just, I would say maybe like two towns away from where I am in Aberlady. Trenent is where my granddad was born. Uh, so oh. he, yes, thank you. So he became suspicious that one of his servants, Gellis Duncan, was involved in the use of witchcraft. Whoa, 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 whoa. What? <laughs> Gellis Duncan? Yeah. That is the name of a character in Outlander who was tried for witchcraft. Let me tell you, that woman is based on this woman. Really? Yeah, beach. Wow. I know. <laughs> I just thought that was a very good Scottish name. <laughs> I'm so glad that you like clocked on that because I haven't actually put that in here. Oh, yeah. But yeah, she is represented in Outlander. So Galus Duncan was involved. He thought that Galus was involved in witchcraft because she suddenly gained a reputation as a healer and was frequently absent from her quarters at night. The magistrate, together with his son, also named David, were known locally as keen witch hunters. After being tortured, Galus started to confess, then proceeded to implicate others during later interrogations. Initially, she denied all of the charges, including having dealings with the devil. But after prolonged torture and the discovery of a devil's mark on her neck, she eventually broke down and confessed to being a witch. Oh. Under torture, she named some of the following accomplices. John Fian, who was a local schoolmaster in Preston Pans, an alleged coven leader and wizard. Agnes Sampson, a respected local midwife and healer. Agnes Thompson... Barbara Napier, who was the widow of the Earl of Archibald Douglas, the eighth Earl of Angus. She was accused of bewitching her husband to death. Archibald was said to have died of a disease so strange that there was no remedy or cure. There was also Francis Stuart, the first Earl of Bothwell, cousin to the king, who is one of the people that folk thought James was targeted so that Francis Stuart could take his place as king. Okay. And there was also Euphemia McLean, who was daughter of Lord Clifton Hall, uh, with whom she conspired to kill her godfather. Why is it always the midwives? 
I know. Any kind Once of nurse. I feel like they always went after nurse, nurses, midwives, healers, anyone who did anything remotely medical, I feel, were targeted. Galus was eventually strangled and her body was burnt. Oh. By November 11th, 1590, Richie Graham, who had a well-established and long-standing reputation among the aristocracy as a magician and necromancer, was detained in the Edinburgh Tollbooth. Initially, other individuals compromised were like Agnes Sampson and John Fian, of low social mm-hmm. status. But very quickly, members of higher social stature began to be incriminated. Ooh. Women like Barbara Napier, who I have already mentioned, she was a member of Edinburgh's High Society, and Euphemy McCalzian is what I think her name may be pronounced like. That's her name. Who was a prominent heiress and part of the city's legal dynasty, uh, both of whom had prior involvement with Galis and Agnes were named as well. Eesh. Not good. Barbara Napier was tried on the 8th of May, 1591. She was found guilty of consulting with witches, namely Richie Graham and Agnes Sampson, but was exonerated on the charge of being present at the witches' convention. Now, this is one thing that I read. This wasn't in every article. The reason it's called the North Berwick Witch Trials is based on one meeting that happened in North Berwick of okay. of, twen- of 200 witches. It's suspected that 200 people gathered at a gathering in North Berwick. And that is why it's the North Berwick Witch Trials. And all of these people were said to have attended or to have consulted with someone who had attended. So they were having a big party. And a they're big all getting accused of going to this party. Oh, aye. And I think I do get <laughs> further in, I'm sure I do get to talk about that. But this... My research really honestly is so garbled this week, but I'm, I'm piecing it together. Don't you worry. You are piecing it together. It's just there's a lot of names and a lot of dates for this one. There is. It's really stressful. Um, so the jury initially was really reluctant to give her the death penalty. I'm talking about Barbara okay. Napier. Uh, but they did on the 10th of May because the king was unwilling to accept the court findings and wrote to jury members insisting a guilty verdict be returned for all of the charges against her. They were ordered to an audience with James on the 7th of June. He berated them at length, emphasising the error of their judgment. It was at the trial of Barbara's jurors that the allegations she was party to, a conspiracy to harm the king, unfolded. This, okay. has, this had not been alleged at her own trial. So she's now got additional allegations against her because of the jurors. Fantastic. She gained a a stalling in the execution by claiming that she was pregnant, but her ultimate fate is unclear. We're not too sure what happened to her. She is known to have been alive and probably incarcerated in kind of 1591, but we do think that she may have been executed later that year, along with five other accused. But we're not too sure. Now let's talk about Euphemia Macalzian. She was the heiress that I had talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was in prison by 7th of May and being interrogated about letters and food she had sent to others held in custody. So a pretty nice woman, I would say. That's a lovely thing to do. She was sending food. That's always a good person. Always a good person. I've run out of chocolate. Send me some more, Miss Macalzian, please. <laughs> um... <laughs> Sworn statements had been taken during January from several people, including her servants, who claimed that she was present at the witch gatherings held at both Aitchison's Haven and North Berwick the previous year. Donald Robson, Janet Stratton and Galus Duncan alleged Euphemy handled a waxen image of King James at the conventions. 
Euphemy's trial started on the 9th of June, 1591, which is a very quick turnaround. That's like two days later. Uh, six eminent advocates urged in her defence. No, they didn't. Six eminent <coughs> advocates argued in her defence for several days. On June 12th, three days later, the panel of notable, of notable landed gentry declared her guilt of 10 of the 28 charges that were listed against her. Can I ask another question? Yes. Was the landed gentry all men? I would not be surprised. Lovely. Let's be serious. This day and age that we're currently talking about. Um, So this, one of the charges against her included being a well-known witch. She was also convicted on two counts of attending meetings of witches, the sentence of death by being burned alive, and the forfeiture of all of her estate was handed down on the 15th of June. Her execution was delayed, however, because she also, like Barbara Napier, claimed to be pregnant um, to try and stave off the mm-hmm. death penalty. Euphemie was nevertheless transported to Castle Hill, tied to a stake and burned alive on the 25th of June, 1591, still maintaining her oh. innocence. So let me just quickly check. So Euphemie was in prison 7th of May okay. and by the 25th of June was executed. Very, very Ugh. quick turnaround. Um, on the 4th of July, less than a fortnight after Euphemie's execution, Donald Robson and Janet Stratton withdrew their assertions that she had attended the witch meetings or had anything to do with the waxed effigy. Robson further clarified that he had not seen nor had, did he have any knowledge of Euphemie until he encountered her when making his previous statement saying that she was there and that she had the wax effigy. Similarly, six months later, at the time of their execution, on the 4th of December, Galis and another of the alleged witches named in her first statement, Bessie Thompson, made lengthy statements retracting their accusations against Euphemie and Barbara Napier of being involved in witchcraft. When questioned as to why they had lied in their confession, both declared that they were forced to it by David Seaton, the witch hunter, and his son, and other people who were not named. Lovely. So the David Setons forced them. So they're witch hunters saying that they love hunting witches and they force people to pretend that they're witches so that they can get executed. (laughs) I think they're actually just insane sadists who enjoyed the thought of setting women alight. See, like, the whole witch hunter or witch finder thing. It was absolutely barbaric. It really was. People were doing... And then what? Oh, and this weir- the weirdest thing about it is that they thought they were justified in what they were doing. Totally, but the fact that so many of their experiments against these women were total fabrications, Tr- doing things like tossing a woman into a lake, and if she sank, she obviously wasn't a witch, but she was dead anyway. And if she floated, <laughs> she was a witch, so therefore got burnt at the stake. Or having retractable daggers and they would poke at people's birthmarks and be like, you're a witch because the knife doesn't make you bleed. It's because it has a retractable blade. It's so (laughs) rubbish. I hate it. It makes me so mad. That whole era was just bizarre. Absolute madness. It's just weird. Okay, so I'm going to tell you now about a little turning point in the the North Berwick witch trials. So this was (gasps) when the king met Agnes Sampson. Okay. who's one of the women that Galus had brought up. 
So the king displayed a passing interest in the early proceedings against Galus and Agnes after he was informed that Agnes had confessed that Galus had played a Jew's harp at the witches' convention in North Berwick Kirk, which happened to be on Halloween, by the way, fun times, in 1590. Love that. He insisted that the young maid servant be brought to play the instrument for him. In an audience with the monarch, Agnes described her involvement in several exploits, among these deeds were trying to cause him harm by casting a spell on a scrap of linen that he had used, the summoning of stormy weather by magic to adversely upset the royal couple's sailings, and her attendance with several others at witches' meetings, the most important of which was held at North Berwick. Agnes Excellent. beckoned the king to come close so that she could whisper in his ear. She revealed private details about James's and Anne's wedding night. Details which should only oh. be possible, which would be impossible for her to know. The king was convinced <gasps> only a witch through her satanic associations would could come by this knowledge. Except for the fact that during this time, royal wedding nights were not private affairs. <laughs> the consummation of the royal marriage bed, marriage bed was a public event, witnessed by important personages at court. Witnesses were seen as a necessity because so much hinged on royal marriages. It is not beyond the realms of possibility that someone went gabbing about telling everyone about what he had seen. I say he because, come on now, most likely. Uh, <laughs> gabbing about what he'd seen at the royal wedding night. Agnes caught wind of it, so therefore knew things. So she was just kind of messing with him a little bit, I think. So basically what she was doing was just telling him the water cooler gossip that she had picked up about his wedding night. 100%. And back Love in those that. days, water coolers were just puddles. They would just stand around a puddle in the street <laughs> and talk. Um, oh, God. We can't even do that now. No, we can't even do that now. Agnes was subjected to severe torture. Initially, she denied any charges brought against her. But then she spent some time in the dungeons. Poor Agnes. Remarkably, I know, really awful... Remarkably, Agnes was able to endure her ordeal for days without confessing. They shaved all of her hair off, of her entire body. She was forced to stand completely naked, stuck to a wall by the witch's bridle. Um, this is a device that has an iron muzzle in an iron framework, which encloses the head. There's then four sharp prongs that go into your mouth. Two prongs are against the tongue and the other two are against ah. the cheeks. She stood like that for days without sleep or food. Agnes wasn't easily broken down. She, obviously, a very, very strong woman. Because uh, I don't know that I would last five minutes. Oh my God, that's barbaric. That's awful. Horrendous. Oh my God. There was rumours as well that in certain articles that I read that men would sometimes get a, ha a hold of these devices to use against their wives if they were too naggy. <sighs> I love the way that men treated women in the olden days. Agnes was obviously clearly very resilient and her mm -hmm. jailers became very frustrated. So they started yep. to increase the level of torture and that included the use of a garrote. Oh, uh, within an hour of having the noose put around her neck and tightened, Agnes eventually confessed to the 53 indictments against her. Uh, the main ones were treason, consorting with the devil and witchcraft. On the 16th of January, 1891, Agnes was taken to the scaffold in Castle Hill, where she was garroted and then burnt at the stake. 
Something that was particularly strange about the North Berwick witch trials were the strange nature of the accusations uh, and also the, the, the different forms of torture that they used uh, against these people that were accused. And they were not all women, I have to say. They, they, yes. They believed in equality in the North Berwick witch trials. They really did try it on with everyone. Uh, although it's not recorded, it's generally accepted that a lot of people died because of the torture injuries and not because of a guilty sentence which led to burning at the stake. Uh, to me, this just sums up like the whole witchfinder thing, right? Is the fact that they would like torture people. And of course people are going to confess to whatever to make you stop. It didn't take a lot to be accused of witchcraft either. Oh, you great. could be accused because you were a redhead. Which, in Scotland, hello, it's literally yeah. our thing. It's what we're known for. It's our niche. Yeah. We, um, you, oh also, if you had an unusual devil's mark, quote, uh, which we would now call a birthmark. Yeah. Um, so they would, the, the devil's mark is what they would stab with a retractable blade. And because you didn't bleed, they would then say, ha you're a witch, but you're not. You're just <sighs> not being stabbed. Uh, and also being left-handed. Because as you said earlier, yes. the Latin for left, sin I think it's sinestra. I think which it's is sinestra, which sin became sinister. sinister. Yeah. Um, traditionally older women as well. And anybody who worked with any kind of medicine or any kind of herbology kind of thing, uh, and primarily midwives as well would be targeted. Some of the implements of torture I will explain to you Ooh. now. Lovely. So there was one in particular that sounds so horrific that I almost don't want to talk about it. It's called the breast ripper. And it does exactly uh. what you think it does. <laughs> so the breast ripper consisted of four pronged levers. Levers, never said it that way before. Levers. Uh, that would encase the the boob of the accused witch and it would then tear her tear it from her chest oh no yeah. no oh god yeah yeah, oh. yeah yeah sleep deprivation was also a very effective means of torture and i mean caused much less physical harm uh than the breast yeah. ripper but um it, the very nature of it of the results played into the hands of the torturer because these torturers they would keep the accused awake for hours and hours and hours to the point where it became days, mm -hmm. which eventually caused the victim's body and brain to reset itself by manually shutting itself down, which, oh. I mean, after I've definitely done a couple of all-nighters and it is rough and I can't imagine having that on top of being accused of a witch and being put in a dungeon. Yeah. Um, in mm. other words, uh, they would start to dream while they were awake Oh, and the kind of dear. the the line of reality and dream state came increasingly blurred, which led to hallucinations, which because of the lack of rest, that would make the prosecutors believe that the individual was a witch invoking magic and confessing to deeds that they had committed. Another horrific account was that of Dr. John Fiennes. His torture included having his fingernails forcibly extracted and then having iron pins thrust there in. Eh. Mm -hmm. He would have the thumb screws, which does what it says on the tin, screws your thumbs. Oh, God. 
And he would also have the boot, which would slowly, it was like a metal contraption that was put on your foot and it would, it would be decreased in size <gasps> until it was so small that your feet were left unable to breathe and they would be crushed and, com- and your feet would be crippled. Dr. John was reported to have endured the torture without expressing any pain. And in the end, he was tricked into confessing that he was in league with the devil. He was finally taken to Castle Hill in in Edinburgh, placed in a cart, strangled and then burnt on the 27th of January, 1591. Oh, God. So that is a couple of stories of the victims. Some of the confessions that came from the torture during the Northberg Witch Trials uh, include the following. Sailing up the Firth of Forth in a sieve to St. Andrew's Old Kirk in North Berwick, which is where they had the 200 people-sized gathering. Also dancing with the devil and kissing his buttocks. Oh. Mm-hmm. Digging well, I up corpses. I can't imagine that being a fun time. I, well, I've always imagined it would be quite hairy, because in my mind, Satan's got <laughs> goat legs. <laughs> That's not what I was expecting it to say. <laughs> Digging up corpses from St. Andrew's Kirkyard, dismembering them, tying the limbs to christened dead cats and throwing them into the sea to conjure up a storm to kill the king. That one had to have come from a, from a, from a hallucination because that is weird. Yeah, that's quite decorative, that one. Yeah. Good lord, lots of and detail. Lots of detail. And also collecting venom from a black toad to be used to poison the king. So most of the confessions were to do with conspiring to take the king out. I mean, I can understand that because he sounds like a prat. Although the North Berwick Witch Trials was the first major witch hunt in Scotland, it was not the last. Okay. Uh, As a whole, there were approximately between 3,100 and 4,000 people accused of being a witch in Scotland in the coming years. Over 1,300 of these would be executed. Eventually, James became the James I of England in 1603 on the death of Elizabeth I and appeared to have continued his fascination of the dark arts. He released a book which was a bestseller called Demonology. It explored areas of witchcraft and demonic magic. He did that while he was king. So again, being a little distracted while probably (laughs) like he was supposed to be doing king things. Because, I mean, you know, like, all the poverty and the probably, like, incoming, like, black no death time for that. that was probably upon them. Or, you know, just the yeah. the normal everyday things. But no, let's just write a nice big book. Yeah. Well, what a snappy title. The North Berwick Witch Trials lasted from 1590 to 92. And they are particularly noteworthy because of the sheer number of witches that were tried from such a tiny and seemingly insignificant town in Scotland on this one occasion. And that's why the North Berwick ones are the ones that I'm kind of obsessed with. Also because it's just down the road. I also believe, I think it was 70 people accused in the North Berwick witch trials alone were executed. That's a big number. It's a lot of people. That's like the population of of Aberlady. (laughs) <laughs> not quite. a lot of people <laughs> not quite it's not Aberlady slightly bigger than that these days <laughs> what is there 71 the, yes there is so I will also there's just as a little bonus a little <gasps> ghost story oh so the tormented ghost of Agnes Sampson the woman who told the king that she knew what happened on his wedding night is said yep. to roam the hallways and corridors of Holyrood Palace tortured oh. naked and bald to this very day. She gets called Bald Agnes. Uh, sightings of her date from the time of her execution through to right now. 
In 2014, a maintenance man was working late trying to repair a faulty lock. He is said to have seen the spirit of Bald Agnes appear at the end of a well-lit corridor. She proceeded to limp in his direction with slow, agonised movements. Startled, the worker let out a scream of terror, at which point the ghost vanished. (gasps) Another sighting of Agnes is said to have taken place in the 90s during a visit by the Chancellor of Germany. The unfortunate witness was a young German diplomat who was seen running out of an office in fear. When he was questioned, he responded that he had seen a naked and transparent apparition floating mid-air with outstretched arms. Mm. Yes. And I love the idea that when James was staying at Holyrood, which was his home for a while, that she would torment him senseless. I love that thought as well, and I sincerely hope she did. Love it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But when when he became king of England, he did move down to London. So that's probably because he was trying to escape her. It It was well known at the time how obsessed and hateful James was towards witchcraft and witches it mm-hmm. was no coincidence that shakespeare wrote macbeth while james was king in the early 17th century oh. uh, for people who don't know and i'm sure most people will macbeth features witches in fact the north berwick witches adventure sailing in a sieve is mentioned in the opening scenes of the play that's so cool so the very first witch says, but in a sieve I'll thither sail, and like a rat without a tail, I'll sow, I'll do, I'll do. So she's like, I'm gonna go Love and I, I'm gonna go in a sieve and I'm gonna go and get the shop and the waters and all that kind of stuff. Somewhat offended that you made the Scot uh, the witches a uh, Glaswegian Neds. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say that you're a Glaswegian Ned. Also, Northbrook Witch Trials said to have inspired Burns's work, including Tam O'Shanter. Oh, an excellent poem, which I will maybe talk about at some point because I love it. And also the 13th member by Molly Hunter, which I don't know, Mm. but there you are. And that, my friend, is the long story of the witches that were tried during the Northbrook witch trial. Well, that is absolutely fascinating because I don't think I knew that was a thing. I think I knew, I knew that there had been witch trials in Scotland, but... I didn't really know much about them. And I feel like because of my beautiful garbled mess of a story that I just told you, you probably still don't know an awful lot about them. <laughs> no, I do. I definitely have learned, learned a lot today. That's good. Although, you know how we, um, we like a link? We love a link. Remember how in our second episode, I talk about an episode of Doctor Who? I do. Well, two years ago, there was actually an episode of Doctor Who that featured King James I's witch hunting escapades. No way! There was. And I believe it was Alan Cumming that played King James I. Hey, Alan Cumming over here doing work. That's nice. Yeah. It was as you were going, I was going, ah, I'm... Oh, so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) What's up? Why Um, are you screaming at me? I think when it comes to like witch trials and stuff like that, everyone always like automatically goes to like the Salem witch trials or like the American ones. And I don't think many people actually realize that that was a right, absolutely rife thing here as well. No, absolutely. And I think I could be completely wrong, but I think the ones that happened in Scotland happened 
first. Salem Witch Trials happened in 1692, so nearly a hundred years later. There you go. So we started it all. We are nothing if not trendsetters here in Scotland. Oh, that's definitely a word for it. I've always found witches fascinating, which is mm-hmm. evident in a lot of my interests. Um, Fair. And I always wanted to be a witch. And so this kind of stuff really fascinates me. But it's also yeah. something that I feel is largely unspoken about in North Berwick. There's not an awful lot for you to see in North Berwick that tells you about the North Berwick Witch Trials. But the St. Andrew's Kirk that I spoke about where they were supposedly held these meetings still exists. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the Seabird Centre, which is quite famous in North Berwick, just up from there, there's the ruins of St. Andrew's Kirk. It's quite Mm -hmm. small, but it's where these witches supposedly had their meetings. There's, I recommend highly that people go away and read about the North Berwick Witch Trials and also king jamie and mary queen of scots and things because this whole thing is so fascinating but there are so many different versions of what happened Mm -hmm. um things like apparently they summoned the devil at this meeting which is not true because they didn't do that but there was someone who attended dressed as the devil so it could be they were having some kind of wild halloween party yeah and it just got misconstrued or it could be they were conspiring to try and kill the king i don't know Mm -hmm. they're but anyways, the ruins are still there, but a lot of it got washed away in a storm. Mm-hmm. So like a lot of the structure is not there mm-hmm. anymore. But I think that is the only spot in North Berwick where there's anything about witch trials. Do you think it's because it's still considered a sort of taboo thing? Or do you think it's because people just don't know their own history? I don't know. I feel like Scotland is the kind of place generally that I think is pretty proud to talk about its history regardless of what that history is see i would agree with that but i would argue that we are actually very bad at learning our own history i don't know if it's the school system like i genuinely don't know but because i don't know that much about the scottish like or like major events in scottish history there is a lot of stuff that happened pretty close to me that i know only because i live here Mm mm-hmm but then I feel like I know plenty of people who live here that are my friends who don't know this kind of stuff. I don't know. I suppose everybody each to their own. I will probably touch on a lot of historical stuff. No, that's to fair. Learn more. And there's a lot of it out there. And also that is why we are doing this, is to facilitate the learning of perhaps unknown Scottish history. And it's all just fun stuff. I love this stuff. I think it's fun. And I think it's um I've really enjoyed learning the stuff that I didn't know already. And yeah, I'm I'm still finding this whole thing really exciting and fun and interesting. Yeah, let's just wrap this mother up. I, as always, encourage you to get in touch. Uh, mm-hmm. Go to our Instagram for photos that are that correspond with the episode when it comes out on Friday, which you know because it's coming out. I do that every time. You do that every time. Every time. <laughs> um, also, if you want to email us any stories of your own that you have, or mm-hmm. anything that you think you'd like us to touch upon, go to a wee bit gothic at gmail.com. Tell us those things. Tell us those things there. Join our Facebook page, which is <laughs> a wee bit gothic. Oh, it's been a bit of a chaotic one tonight, but hey. We... It has, but if you've stuck with us throughout it, well done. Exactly. And we like to keep we like to keep you on your toes. We don't want you to get lulled into a false sense of security. <laughs> no, no, no. 
We are nothing if not consummate professionals that have days off. We're only human. There's a song in there, but I'm not going to sing it because I refuse to be the one that sings a song for everything. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Was that gothic? A wee bit. Thank you.